0: Well, good morning, everybody. Sure, it looks like half of everybody's gone this morning. Yesterday, this place was packed. I don't know how to breathe in here. This morning, there's a lot of fresh air. It's wonderful to have you here. Um, those of you who made it out, um, it's exciting time that uh, DeMilt uh, just referred us to. For those of us who still have our spouses, we've got this week to... Uh, and. To, to really reflect, thank you for Valentine's Day, whoever thought that out, or I can't even remember where that came from, but at least once a year we can be a little bit romantic, so all the men out there uh, make some work of it this week. I always play tricks on Alfredo, I like playing tricks on her, we, uh, we started dating, Brother DeMille talks about distance, we were like uh, almost a thousand miles apart when we started dating, and so uh, I, I would drive where she was, you know in that beginning when you infatuated, the love is crazy man, you drive miles to get to that woman. And I would drive through the night. Get there. Oh, it's just, it just, you would just kiss away, man, the whole weekend. Yeah, I get home the, after the weekend. My mouth is hurting. It's like right. But um, in, in, in any case, so she eventually moved to the city where I was living, which was Cape Town, South Africa. And um, it, was the, it was Valentine's Day, the 14th of February, uh, 2000 and Nine, I think it was, and I was throwing these hints. I'm going to marry this woman. She she knew it, and um, I, I say well, today we're going to go drive around, look at the most beautiful spots in Cape Town. Cape Town's incredible. You don't know what it looks like. You need to Google it. It's been rated one of the top three most beautiful cities in the world numerous times, and uh, we go to these romantic spots. And I never ask her to marry me, and she knows I've already bought the ring, and the whole day goes by no no marriage, man, and I think she was so upset, but I deliberately did that, because the next day was church, that was a Saturday, and I asked her in front of the church, like 300 people, luckily she said yes, luckily, but, uh, so these are good times just to go back, uh, to remember the beginning of your your love relationship, and um, this coming Friday, we're gonna um, have a thing here for the kids at the church, if you if you know of anybody with, with kids and you want to go out on a romantic night, do that. Leave the kids by us. We'll, we'll talk to them about Jesus. Okay, um, this is the, the title of the new series. I told you uh, last week that I'm going to do two series interchangeably. The one being about the Bible and being Bible-based in your life. And then this week I'm starting this one and I'll alternate between them. And the real question this morning is how do I know that I'm saved. How do I know that I'm saved? I want to just remind you quickly about what happened in the garden of Eden. In the garden of Eden God placed Adam and Eve there and there were two trees in the garden. The one was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the other one was the the tree of life. And when you eat of the and there's a lot of symbolism in there. We don't even have to talk about whether this garden was real or whatever. There's a lot of powerful symbolism in here. If you live in the garden, you can eat of the tree of life. And if you can eat from the tree of life, you can have what? Eternal life. Because that tree keeps you alive. God said you cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, what will happen? You will die. And what did our beautiful first couple that ever lived do? By the way, you want to know about marriage? Go to those guys. They taught us right in the beginning how to mess things up. Right? And it started with a woman, by the way. No, I'm just joking. It's actually the man's fault any case, so they eat of this this tree and from then on they died. And they did die. They were banished from the garden, right? And when they were banished from the garden, God sent an angel to protect the garden so that they couldn't go back into it. They can't go back into the garden to eat of the tree of life, right? The tree of life gives them eternal life. So they were cut out from eternal life. The moment you sin... You cut yourself off from eternal life. Here's the problem. We've all sinned. Right? And so we all cut off from eternal life. So Adam's children died. Adam's children's children died. And the children's 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 children, they all died. Our children will die and we will die. Why? Because we've been banished from the garden. All who sin die. All have sinned, therefore all die. And this has made human beings feel uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. Death is very uncomfortable. And we've dealt with that a few times in the last um, few years. And the human race have always been struggling with this idea of dying. Something doesn't feel right about it. Right, Brother Tom? There's something about it that just doesn't, it doesn't it's not like, oh, that's cool, let's, let's let this happen. No, it's not fun. I had a wonderful gentleman here yesterday that, um, the, the, if you were here yesterday, mate, it's a gentleman that, where his teeth fell out while he was trying to talk such a special, special moment, and I spoke to him afterwards, and, and he told me, he, he's got less than a year to live, he's got pancreatic cancer, you know, I'm talking to a man whose life is coming to an end, and, something, and he's actually got a very good attitude about it, but there's something still about death that just doesn't feel right, and I think the clue is given to us in the book of Ecclesiastes, because Solomon says, God has placed eternity in our hearts, and so there's something inside of us that tells us, hey man, I'm meant to live forever, but yet we die. It doesn't make sense, right? Even our relationships with our children and, and with the people that we love, we're like, this is meant to be forever, but then they die or I die or my spouse dies. And so we don't know how to deal with this idea that, that, that we die, yet there's eternity in us. That's why death is so incredibly um, difficult for us to deal with. But then Jesus came. Jesus came and Jesus died. And that's normal. It's normal for people to die, it seems like. It's understandable. But then He rose from the grave. And that was not normal. But when He rose from the grave, He opened up the possibility that even though we die, we can have eternal life. It's like this barrier between us and the garden and the tree of life was taken away through Jesus Christ. That now eternal life is a very real thing for us. This famous text in John chapter 3, verse 16 it, it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life Jesus Christ corrects what the garden what was messed up in the garden he he, he paves the way he takes away the barrier for us to have eternal life that's why we are here Christianity exists because God has given the opportunity for all people To live forever through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us the following. It is appointed unto all men to die once and then to face the judgment. We die, we face the judgment. Death is the destiny of every man, Solomon said. David called death the way of all the earth. And so, this physical body of ours will come to an end, it will die, and then we face the judgment, and at the judgment, we will know whether we have eternal life. Now, here's the big question Shall we wait until we die to find out if we have eternal life? This is a big question, I think, that many Christians have. Like, hey man, I've been going to church like my whole life, and I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. I don't know if I have eternal life or not. Have you ever had that question? Just raise your hand quickly. Like wondered like, Jesus, oh, am I actually going to heaven or am I not? How do I know that I've got eternal life? That's what this series is about. Because the Bible promises this thing, but do I actually have it? And how can I know? Are your sins covered? Is God going to let you into heaven? And can you know? Some people believe they will negotiate with God for eternal life. I could say, "You know, I don't worry about eternal life. I'll come to the judgment, okay? That's appointed to me, and I'll I'll speak to God and tell him and convince him. Hey, Lord, please let me let me live forever with you. I'll negotiate it when I get there. We'll deal with it when we get there." Some people have eternal life, but they don't believe it. Some people don't have eternal life, but they think they have it. A, a very famous text, Matthew. Chapter 7, 21 to 24. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive our demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are like perfect church people. These people drive our demons and stuff, right? These are like spiritual giants. And they come to Jesus on the judgment and say, Lord, I'm, this is all the stuff that I did for you and in your name, and uh, I want to go in. And Jesus is like, no, I don't know you. So you can think that you have eternal life, but you don't. And you can actually have eternal life and don't believe that you have it. Now, that's really the, the, the section I want to focus on. I want us really to know we have eternal life. And that's what the series is going to be about. So it's going, to be, it's going to be a litmus test to check your own life. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're saying, well, I don't really know if I have eternal life. This is a very good uh, series for you. Because people who have eternal life, people who are saved, people who belong to, to God, they carry certain characteristics with them. And we want to look at those characteristics. In other words, saved people can be identified. I like what this guy says. He says, our deeds are not the basis of our salvation. They are the evidence of our salvation. They are not foundation. They are demonstration. A person that has come into contact with Christ, that has been saved by Him, that has got a relationship with Him, live a certain way. And we want to we figure out what does that look like. Saved people look differently. All right, everybody with me? You ready for this? All right. So, I'm going to, for the series, I'm just going to look at the book of 1 John to deal with this topic because I think John does a very good job of that. Now, John was one of the 12 apostles that walked with Jesus, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's what he calls himself. In John chapter 13, verse 23. And that sounds a little bit arrogant. Hey, hey, guys, I'm the guy that Jesus loved. Jesus really liked me, man. That's a really arrogant thing to say. Um, but I want you to just hang in there for a moment. It, it, it's not He doesn't say it in an arrogant way. He was one of the sons of thunder. You've heard of these guys? He was one of, one of two brothers, James and John. They were called the sons of thunder in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. When he was about 30 years old... He walked with Jesus. I want you to just hang in there for a second as I describe this this John for us. So he was about 30 years old when he walked with Jesus. Okay? At one point, Jesus sent the disciples ahead to a town in Samaria where the Samaritans lived and said, Please go prepare a place in so-and-so's house for me to come and stay. The disciples arrived at the town and the people in the town said, We don't want Jesus here he's on his way to Jerusalem, this is a Jew, and remember Jews and Samaritans, they don't associate with each other, so the disciples come back to Jesus, and tell Jesus, hey Jesus, we're sorry to tell you, these guys don't want you in their town, now John and his brother James, they're highly upset, and they say to Jesus, the following, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy these guys? You want us to pray and ask God to destroy the place like Sodom and Gomorrah, essentially? You want us to burn these people? And that's why they were called the sons of thunder. Because they were like, hey, we need to, we need to kill guys and destroy them who in any way refuses to accept our Lord Jesus. So, so obviously Jesus says, no, are, are you crazy, basically. But John was a hothead and he was an aggressive man, an angry man. But something happened to him. The more he spent time with Jesus, the more he became like Jesus. He called himself the one Jesus loved because he was amazed that Jesus would love someone like him. We suspect that this same John left Jerusalem in about AD 70. He was about 70 years old. When he left Jerusalem. Just before the destruction of Jerusalem. And he became a shepherd in the church in Ephesus, we suspect. Those of you who have been here on Sunday nights will remember where Ephesus is. That's where Ephesus is. And he became a shepherd to all the churches in the the province of Asia. He became a bishop, an elder. And when he was about 100 years old, he wrote this book of 1 John. So everybody with me with this, John? Aggressive guy, hot-tempered guy, walked with Jesus, okay? Was forgiven by Jesus, was loved by Jesus. Then he moved from Jerusalem because of the destruction to this area, to Ephesus. And he became a shepherd in the church over there. And I want you to take note that he is the only surviving apostle left. The only one that got that old. 100 years old. The only person left on earth that physically walked with Jesus was John. When he writes this letter, the only one left that touched Jesus, that listened to Jesus speak. All the other guys have died. Peter was crucified upside down. James, I think, was killed with a sword. Paul has been decapitated. This guy is the only one that's still alive. Can you imagine how the churches in Asia viewed him? What they thought about him? Tradition says that he would would travel from church to church, to Sardis and to Laodicea. And people would take him in a a, a chariot and he would go and he would arrive in in these little towns. And the Christians would all gather around. The last surviving man that walked with Jesus is here. And they say that time and time again, town after town, John would slowly stand up, and he would say to the crowd, just these following words. And you're going to recognize it if you've ever read the book of 1 John, this is what he said over and over again, little children, love one another. Here is a man that knew the love of Christ. I'm an angry man, I'm a hothead, but Jesus loved me still. And this was John's message right through the end of his life. Little children love one another. It was this same John who wrote the Gospel of John. It's the same John who wrote these three epistles, 1 John, Second John, and Third John. It's the same John who had the revelation given to him by Jesus Christ, the last book in the Bible. But 1 John is very unique. John is responding to these churches in Asia Minor where... False teaching had infiltrated the churches. A movement or a school of thought arose that placed doubt on Jesus, who He was, and on His resurrection. People were starting to doubt. Hey, this story about Jesus, I mean, we've got to make sense of this Jesus. I mean, we didn't walk with Jesus. And, you know, it sounds a little bit weird that this guy would die on a cross and, and you know, and then he would be be buried, and he comes out of the tomb, and he's alive, you know, and he's God. I mean, how do we make sense of this? Very much like what's happening in our world today. People are really doubting the story of Jesus. And so they develop all of these interesting, far-fetched ideas to deal with this, to make sense of this. How do we make sense of this? So they develop philosophies and theologies to make sense of Jesus. They thought they needed to make Christianity more intellectually respectable. These bunch of Christians believe somebody died and he was resurrected. But they, they couldn't deny the fact that these people really believed it. And so they infiltrated the churches with false teachings. One of the, um, one of the doctrines was Gnosticism. Where they say that all matter is evil. Therefore God could not have come in the flesh. Jesus was just a man, but the divine Jesus came upon the man Jesus at his baptism, but departed again before his resurrection. Jesus on the cross was not God incarnate. It wasn't God hanging on the cross over there. It was just a man for that moment. For agnostics, ideas were the great thing instead of historic fact that the faith was built upon. So they made up their theories of who Jesus was. And there was docetism. It comes from the Greek word "docio," which means to seem. And the doctrine was this, that Christ only seemed to have a human body. It looked like he had a human body, but he really didn't. Both these complex doctrines threw these Christians into confusion and made them doubt their faith, doubt their salvation, and doubt their eternal life. And John responds. I want you to picture just a moment. How do you think John responds to this? What do you think John would say? Well, exactly what you would expect. He's the the last guy that walked with Jesus, right? He saw Jesus with his own eyes. So if you go read the first few verses of 1 John, he's essentially saying to them, listen, on behalf of the apostles, we have heard him. We have seen him and touched him ourselves. I touched Jesus. Jesus. I heard him teach with our own hands and our own ears and our own eyes. We've seen the guy. We are eyewitnesses. You come with these fancy teachings and things, you can go on. You can rant about that. But let me tell you, I'm an eyewitness. I experienced Jesus Christ. We have seen eternal life. Jesus is real. We saw him transfigured in front of us. We saw him raised from the dead. This isn't a made-up story. This is real. We touched his wounds. There's nothing fancy, there's nothing complex about what he taught. He taught me that God is light, and that we need to walk in it. And, and God is truth, and we need to walk in it. And he wants us to love one another. That's the simple thing of Christianity. Love one another, walk in light, walk in truth. And if we deny the Son, we cannot have the Father. So you want to deny that He is who He claimed to be? You can't have the Father. You can't have eternal life. Every person that acknowledges that Jesus Christ is from God and that He has come in the flesh is from God. But anybody that doesn't admit this isn't from God. He's the Antichrist. And then he has something powerful to say in chapter 5, in verse 13. He says, this is the reason why I write this book. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is saying, I want you to understand that you have eternal life. You need to know this. You don't have to doubt it. You don't have to worry about it. And he tells us a few things throughout the book, a few things that can help us realize whether we have fellowship with the Father. And... I wanted to pause the lesson here this week, but I decided I'm going to give us one. I'll give us the first one. I can't leave you in anticipation. Deal? And I'm going to put it, I'm going to phrase it in questions. And I want you to think deeply about this question and I'll explain it as we go about so you can really reflect on your own life. And this is personal. It's very deep and very personal. Here's the first question to ask yourself if you want to know if you have eternal life. Do you walk in the light? Do you walk in the light? Look at what John says here, right in the beginning, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. Who's the him that he's referring to there? It's the Jesus he just spoke about. He says, we've seen Jesus. And this is one of the things that Jesus told us. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. There's no darkness in him. We were with Jesus, we listened to him speak, he told us things, and one of the things that he told us, we proclaim to you, that God is light, there's no darkness at all in him. What does that mean? There is no evil in God. There is no lying in him. There's no impurity, there's no pollution. God hides nothing. What you see is what you get. God doesn't have a dark side. You've heard people say that? Well, well, this guy's dark side. Well, you have a dark side. Or many of the ladies would say, my husband's dark side. You've seen that dark side. God doesn't have that side. He's clean all the way around. He's pure all the way around, right? This is the message that Jesus brought about God. Now it gets. So I want you to picture in your mind that when you look at God, He's a light and He's white and nothing is hidden and nothing is dark. There's no dark spot in Him. There's no evil, n- nothing, right? Pure as can be. Listen to the next verse. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. So if you're saying, hey, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, and then you're supposed to be in the light. You understand? Because then we're with Him. He's in the light because He is light. He's totally light, totally pure. But if you walk over there and you're in the dark and you do dark things, you can't claim To have relationship with Him because you're not with Him. You're in the dark. Let me try and explain that further. If you claim to be a Christian but you walk in the darkness, you are a liar and you ignore the truth. You cannot have fellowship with God while walking in the darkness. God is not in the darkness. He is in the light. The closer you get to Him, the more you come into the light. If you want to be close to Him, you must come into the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? What does that mean? Well, walking in darkness is pretty simple, isn't it? What about covering your secrets? That's walking in the dark. You're hiding things. You're not being open. What about hiding thoughts and feelings from the most precious people in your life? What about not being really honest about who you really are? It's walking in the dark. What about not having integrity? Like you do things and only you know you do it and you know it hurts people. You're not walking in the light. What about lies and dishonesty? Oh, I did that a lot. I've done that a lot in my life. And you can pause for a moment and think about yours as well. The first time I really realized I'm walking in darkness was when I was a little kid. And I, I don't know why my mother did this. And now I realize I do the same thing to my kids. I uh, dish them food, and 89% of my plate is vegetables. I despise vegetables. Why doesn't she just give me 10%? And I've got a thing that I've got to deal with 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 God, and me and Wes spoke about this yesterday. Why didn't he make broccoli taste like chocolate? <laughs> Wouldn't that have been incredible? And so what I do is I didn't want to eat this stuff, but I didn't want to be open about it and say, Mom, I hate this stuff. I want to, uh, please don't ever give it to me, because I knew that wouldn't work, so what I did was, I would sit there on the couch, now we're all sitting, and I'd wait until everybody's glued to the screen, you know those days when you, when you have the lounge around the TV, and, and everybody's watching TV, and I'd take that veggies off the plate, I was like, from my pocket, I just hide I did stuff, I'd go to the bathroom, and I'd say, I need to go wee mom, okay, that's fine, then I'd go, throw it in the toilet, Eventually, you know, I couldn't flush away all the peas, and then my mom would know, and so I threw it out the window, and then she eventually saw it outside because the dogs wouldn't eat it. Dumb dog, why don't you just eat the stuff? Walking in the light is actually just being honest about it. Walking in the dark is hiding it, because you don't want to face the truth, and you're scared what people are going to say. That's, for me, one of the moments I realized, look, this is a dark thing that I'm doing. Walking in the light is coming to God with all your mess, openly and honestly. It's playing with an open hand. And it's revealing yourself to God with all of your mess, with all of who you are. It's being honest about your blind spots. You cannot live a secret life or a double life and think you have fellowship with God. You don't. You can't. It's impossible because he's in the light. So as long as you're hiding things, you're in the dark. You can't claim to have eternal life. Jesus said, everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Myself and the boys, we run around in here at night. Like we have games, hide and seek and whatever. I And, and the lights are off. I despise it when they put on those lights. Because then they know immediately where I am. And I'm crawling here, army crawling between the benches and stuff, attacking them unexpectedly until they switch on the lights. Then they see everything. And that's one of the reasons why we don't want to come into the light. Because when you come into the light, we realize, oh my goodness, there's some things that I need to deal with. Well, John continues to, to, to say um, in, the, in the following verses, well, actually, there's something I wanted to just first ask you about. Can you imagine walking your whole life next to a perfect person? I sometimes feel like that. I feel like Alfreda's like perfect. She says, I've got so much sin. I'm like, what sin? It feels like I'm walking next to a perfect person. Uh, What do you do when you walk next to a perfect person? Or you're in a person that never makes, uh, in the presence of a person that never makes mistakes. What what, what do you do? Uh, Well, I think you either make as if you're perfect as well, so you can sort of fit in and not feel too bad. Or... You just admit it. Okay, I'm not as good as you. I'm really imperfect. It's one of those two things. If you make as if you're perfect, what are you doing? You're lying. That's what John is talking about. You're lying because you know you're imperfect. So you can't say, well, I'm walking with God, but you've got this lifestyle. And this, and, and you're going to hear this. This, is not, this lesson is not about being a perfect person. It's about being honest about the imperfections. Rather be the person that admits and says, look, I'm not as perfect and cool as you, and and I I don't get things right, and I can't fake it because I want to be honest. That's walking in the light. You either admit your sin or you stay in the dark, essentially. Walking in the light is not about being sinless, but about being open about our sinfulness. Let that sink in. This lesson is not about, this, walking in the light not about, hey, I've got no sin. Walking in the light is like, Lord, you're perfect and holy and clean and I'm not. But here's all my mess. You're being open and honest with Him. Well, verse 7 continues to say, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. I read one day an, an illustration of a, of a preacher of a church. That was um, busy. Uh, his friend arrived at his house and um, he g- g- got into the door and he saw the, the, the preacher of, of the church busy watching pornography on his, on his, on his, on his TV. And the guy's like shocked out of his socks. He's like, you, wh- wh- what are you doing? And the preacher didn't switch it off. He had no shame. He, says, he said, no, I'm looking the devil in the eyes. I don't know what he, what, he, what he meant by that, but he's sort of saying, we need to deal with the devil. We don't hide from the devil. And I'm like, that is a crazy thing, crazy thing to say. The guy responded, no, you are dishonest. You are sinning, but you don't want to admit it. You make an, a, an excuse up for what you are doing. You're not walking in the light, you're walking in the darkness. You are in the darkness, and you don't know that you are, but you refuse to acknowledge it. Oh, sorry, you know that you are. We are scared of our sin. We don't want to reveal it because we think it will alienate us from God. That's why we don't want to come to God with everything. Because we think we're not not good enough for Him. Well, we are not good enough. Nobody is good enough to come to God. But that is because we don't know God. I loved this when I read it one day. God is not like your dad. Religion says, I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call dad. There's one person in the universe that we can come to with all of our sin. And that's Jesus Christ. He will never push us away. You see, God forgives revealed sin, not concealed sin. God doesn't forgive what we do and we don't acknowledge. He forgives what we do and we do acknowledge. That's what walking in the light is. So question, do you tell God about your sin? Verse 8 says, if we... Uh, claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And someone might say, well, I don't really have sin. Well, John says, you're talking nonsense. If you claim to have no sin, you deceive yourself and you claim that God is a liar And you don't have the truth in you. And there's no place for His word in your life. You are blind. You're pitiful. And you are lost. Listen. The closer you get to God, the more your sin is amplified. The more you become aware of your sin. Eventually, you cannot ignore it unless you increase the gravity of the lies that you tell yourself. At the heart of this concept of walking in the light is the word confess. And I've just got a few verses here for you and then I'll close off with an illustration. Acts 19 verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. That's walking in the light. When you start to believe Jesus is who he claims to be, the first thing you do is you confess. Oh Lord, I'm a sinner. First Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life. To which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This is why when we baptize somebody, what do we say? Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? When you make that confession, eternal life becomes yours. 2 Timothy 2.19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness you cannot walk with God and walk in darkness at the same time Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen: whoever conceals their sins does not prosper but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy he says it very clearly there right beautiful last psalm psalm 32 verse 1 to 5 Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, he's talking about confession. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I once heard, this is an illustration, the late Dr. F.E. Marsh tell that on one occasion he was preaching on this question of confession. And urging his hearers about the importance of confessing sin wherever possible. And to restore what wrong has been done. At the close of one of his sermons, a young man, a member of the church, came to him with a troubled face. He said, Pastor, you have put me in a sad fix. I have wronged another and I am ashamed to confess it or to try to put it right. You see, I'm a boat builder and the man I work for is an infidel unbeliever. I have talked to him often about his need of Christ and urged him to come and hear you preach, but he scoffs and ridicules it all. Now I've been guilty of something that, if I should acknowledge it to him, will ruin my testimony forever. He will never be interested in, in the God that I worship. He then went on to say that some time ago he started to build a boat for himself in his own yard. In this work, copper nails are used because they do not rust in the water. These nails are quite expensive, and the young man had been carrying home quantities of them to use on the job, so he stole from his his employer. He knew it was stealing, but he tried to solve his conscience by telling himself that the master had so many, he would never miss them, and besides, he was not being paid uh, all that he thought that he deserved. But this sermon had brought him face to face to the fact that he was just a common thief for whose dishonest actions there was no excuse. But, said he, I cannot go to my boss and tell him what I have done or offer to pay back for uh, those I have used and return the rest. If I do, he will think I'm just a hypocrite. And yet these copper nails are digging into my conscience and I know I shall never have peace until I put this matter right. For weeks the struggle went on. Then one night he came to Dr. Marsh and exclaimed, Pastor, I've settled for the copper nails And my conscience is relieved at last. So he went to his employer and told him he'd been stealing these copper nails. And so the pastor asked him, what what happened when you confessed to your employer what you had done? Oh, he answered. He looked at me and he said, and I want us to listen to these words carefully. George, I always did think that you were just a hypocrite. But... Now I begin to feel there's something in this Christianity after all. Any religion that would make a dishonest workman come back and confess that he had been stealing copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having. It was the confession that gave this man grace and mercy And it's the confession, the walking in light, that gives us grace and mercy from God. It's pretty easy. Test yourself this morning. Do you walk in the light? Or do you walk in the dark? If you live an open life, and you are an open book, And you boast in your weaknesses. And you refuse to conceal your sin. In the sight of God and man. I've got good news for you. You have fellowship with God. And John says, you may know that you have eternal life. That's the first point. There's four more coming. But people who are serious about God have a strong conscience and they don't like walking in the dark and it's one of the ways that you can find out where you stand with the Creator